So back again, uh, this is uh, episode 22 now, Go Mountain Goats podcast uh, with uh, me, Finley Wild. Um, a little bit of an intro, um, I last episode we had Jack, Jack Kenzel on, uh, the American who'd uh, come and done the Tranter round and we, that was really exciting. Uh, he's then obviously gone on and got uh, smashed the Bob Graham round in the Lake District taking 29 minutes off Killing Journey's record, which, uh, yeah, you know, that was uh, the most impressive kind of uh, thing in British uh, running this year. It was really cool uh, to see that happening. Uh, he did a really good podcast, a uh, single track podcast, uh, where he discussed in, in detail uh, all the ins and outs of that, which is worth a listen. Um, also, while we're on the Tranta, Jill Stephen got the women's record, um, took um, a couple of minutes off, uh, I think it was Helen Bonzer's, Helen Fallis now is the record. So that was cool that Tranta was getting uh, even more attention. Um, I am in Edinburgh at the moment. I've just come back up from the Yetham Shepherd Show race where uh, it was uh, quite a, a tough race with... Uh, at the front with um, myself and uh, Andy Douglas and managed to get the win, which makes me uh, Scottish champion this year, which is great. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm delighted to be in Edinburgh uh, in the home of Ollie Stevenson, who I have pestered to let him come, uh, let me come and interview him um, about a whole variety of things. Uh, Ollie's been doing loads of cool stuff in the hills basically since way before I was born. <laughs> Um, and one thing that sort of stroke me, strike, strikes me, um, it all seems to be that just the variety of different adventures he's had over the years. We've got some mutual friends who are always telling me different stories uh, involving Ollie. Um, and um, so we're going to talk, uh, eventually we're going to get on to talking about the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, over two and a half thousand miles uh, from Mexico to Canada, which was a trip Ollie did for three months um, this summer. Um, but just, I suppose, to give a bit of background, um, just a few of the things when I was Googling and looking. Uh, so Ollie's done the three big rounds in the UK. Um, he's, uh, that was 2004, 2005, 2010. Um, he's done loads of rock and alpine climbing uh, in Europe as well as the US where he lived for, I think, three years. Yep. Um, he's going to talk, tell us about the Petit Trot a Leon, which is sort of a, uh, one of the the UTMB um, wild 260k adventures. Um, fast packing the John Muir Trail, uh, 220 miles. Um, he's he was the Kanethi Five race director for I think 14 years. We've just been looking at looking at <laughs> an amazing trophy. Yep. Uh, amazing handmade trophy from clubmate Billy Elliot. It's a thing of beauty. It's lovely. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe the, that's maybe the first time we met might have been at an FE5 race. I think it was, yeah. Um, which is the biggest race in Scotland, biggest hill race in Scotland, and I'm imagining one of the most logistically complex with the buses to the start and, and finish. Um, and I'm... Uh, yeah, rambling along, but essentially, yeah, Ollie, it's a pleasure to to be here, and you've uh, invited me in, and we've had a lovely dinner, and we're sitting with the, the fire on, just uh, uh, enjoying a, a nice chat. 
Yeah, well, well, Finley, thank you very much for, for coming and for uh, inviting me onto your, your podcast. I, I, I'm not sure I'm worthy compared to all the other people you know who've done much bigger things than I've ever done, but um, I look forward to having a chat in the next few minutes. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think uh, the first thing I would like to ask really is just, yeah, about beginnings. Um, like I was saying, yeah, you've done you've done a lot of varied stuff over the years. Um, what, what, what were the beginnings, like, or the origins of kind of this lifetime interest? Uh, I, well, I, I grew up in North London. Um, I'm youngest of four boys. Um, my parents were uh, into walking and sort of holidays as kids involved going to different parts of the UK and, 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 and hiking. But particularly on my mum's side of the family, there was quite a decent history of, of climbing. So my okay. uncle was a big climber, uh, Martin Sinker, and my mum's my uncle, my great uncle, uh, was actually a famous climber in the 30s um, called Jack Longland. So in 1933, he got to, I think, within about 2,000 feet of the top of Everest. Really? Um, and he put some of the hardest climbs up in, in, in the country, in this, in this country at the time. So he put up the first E1. Um, it wasn't repeated okay. for 10 years. Uh, so these stories were always in the family, and I guess I was subliminally inspired. Um, sent on out, outward bound type holidays uh, by my dad, which I think helped. Uh, and uh, and then, aged maybe fifteen, a, a friend cycled from Inverness to Hereford, and that was it. Completely blew my mind that you could cycle that far. And so, aged sixteen, uh, the day after my O levels, a friend and I, my friend who just finished his A levels, he was fifteen, uh, set off on the train and cycled Lands End to John O'Groats, and I guess that set. Okay. the template of setting, finding something that inspired me, breaking it down into manageable chunks and going off and, and just sort of taking it a day at a time. And uh, I suppose that's the model that I've used for all my other trips, really. And that was something I did from, from then. So, yeah. So was that, yeah, that trip, the, the jog on yeah. the bikes, was that sort of, do you have memories of that being like, the first sort of big, big adventure, sort of, uh, yeah, with friends. Yeah, definitely, and uh, just, and and in of all the trips I've done, I still think the greatest sense of achievement I've ever had on any of my trips was was reaching John O'Groats, age sixteen. Okay. Um, and, and you know that that sense of satisfaction has probably stayed with me to this day. I know it's not a huge achievement in the grand scheme of things, but. For a, a Londoner, age sixteen, it, yeah. it, it felt it felt like a reasonable a reasonable outing. So, and when when whenabouts was that? Uh, so, I was born in sixty eight, so that was nineteen eighty four. Okay. And I've still got the youth hostel handbook from nineteen eighty four on the bookshelf. And none of those youth hostels exist anymore, but it's an amazing slice of history. Of you know, I definitely spent more time sending postcards to book all of the youth hostels than I ever did 
studying for my O-levels. <laughs> my, my parents must have been horrified. <laughs> so, I, so I've actually missed Soji in my introduction then, because I was born in 84. Okay. So you hadn't, you hadn't done that much before I was oh, born. Okay, okay. I'm older than... <laughs> I'm older than I've made out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how, yeah, how did the, these interests sort of from then, how did that sort of go on to shape your life and your, your life choices? Um, uh, I, I guess, the, I suppose the other influence, sorry, just going back to influence, I suppose my, my brother Rob um, did lots of expeditions and walking. Uh, so I guess that it, Rob was also an influence on, on all of that. Uh, so 16... Uh, was was cycling 17 a school friend and i went out and walked from lake geneva to nice on the gr5 okay um, and back then i remember it as being reasonably wild maybe that was just the perspective of a 17 year old um and that had a similar sense of of uh like lands into john it's just you know just felt like an amazing amazing summer amazing thing to do um, and then discovered climbing at the local climbing wall in North London at the Sobel Centre. Um, and it was a six-week introductory course, and I would go every Monday for the course, and probably four nights in between each Monday night, I would go down by myself. And I, I didn't know anybody, I didn't have anybody to climb with, so I would solo all of these routes at the wall. Okay. <laughs> and sometimes I remember getting stuck at the top for a section that had no matting underneath and I was probably you know, 30 foot above the gym, gymnasium floor uh, and just that sense of arms failing and you think I've really blown it. And luckily for me, my Monday night instructor happened to be there and he just very calmly taught me through how to finish it. But that sense of... Uh, movement and uh, just just the mental aspects and the physical aspects of climbing. So I, I just got completely addicted to climbing. Um, and then it dominated my life probably for 12 years. Um, so to answer your question, it was then uh, what I studied, where I studied, my circle of friends, the jobs I did, pretty much the first criteria in all of those was you know what's it going to be like for climbing so i studied okay. in the north of england to be near climbing uh, first in derby then in leeds from the masters uh, at the end of the masters um well, I, I went working and climbing overseas for a year and a half but after the masters i took a job in the states in southern california because it was very close to joshua tree which is world-class okay. climbing and because it was close to yosemite which is which is also world-class climbing. Um, and through my climbing friends, I met and married Jane, who's, who's my wife. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, if that answers your question. Yeah. Um, and it was only really when we started a family, we came back to the UK. So we had a long honeymoon, came back to the UK. And um, it was when we started a family that I, I kind of transitioned from climbing into into running and then running into hill running and then hill running into longer runs. And that was just because I didn't want to be away from the family and I didn't want to be doing stuff with with a maybe a higher risk associated. Okay, yeah, so, sure. Yeah. And your honeymoon, long honeymoon, was, was that involving the tandem? Yeah, so we left the church on our tandem 
uh, we left the reception on our tandem. If you think of the States as a as a rectangle, so we left on from Huntington Beach, which is south of LA on the coast. Um, we cycled um, we cycled up fairly close to the Canadian border and then across to finish in Boston. So we, we went across the States, but kind of did two sides of the States. Oh, wow. um, and it was just amazing. That was uh, three months and great start to married life, a great way to see an amazing country, met many, many amazing people, um, and continues to be the source of lots of memories and stories to this day. Um, and we still got the tandem, so, <laughs> which is nice. Which I've seen in the shed just there. It's a bit, yeah. it's a bit dusty, yeah. but yeah, we still got it. Um, yeah, obviously, yeah, you've mentioned, yeah, progressing through climbing, walking, running, yeah. biking, obviously. Like, what would you say, like, you've got a particular, um, like, approach to these things? Like, how do you, are you quite meticulous? Like, are you a planner or do you just kind of go and do what comes into your head? Like, what, um, so I think I've, the, uh, yeah, I've, I, I think I've developed, I, I tend to analyse what what's required and what has been successful, and I've I've failed at a number of things over the years. And I guess learning that failing can be positive because you learn a lot more from your failures than if you just turn up and do something first time. Yeah, yeah. And so, for example, um, I, I was lucky enough to do. Uh, the Bob Graham in in 2004 that was really the start of of some of the longer runs but that was my third go and the year before I tried it twice and in fairly um, disorganized slightly chaotic approach and that was really what taught me how to how to do these things and I guess taught me that succeeding on certainly on the bigger things if you think of a really simple pie diagram with three equal sized bits of the pie, um, I think most people, and this is particularly true on things like the Pacific Crest in the States, and I'm not going to say Americans, but particularly in, in sort of developed countries, most people I think fixate on the equipment okay. and getting yeah. the very lightest and the very best and whatever. Um, and I think that's important, but I think it's maybe a third of what's required. I think a third is perhaps um, everything around the planning and the logistics, um, and and then I, and, and I guess that would that would probably include um, your training and your fitness. Okay. And then I think the third piece is the mental side, and I guess I've always found that I have a, a reasonable head game going on. With, with the bigger events and I think that's often because I've actually consciously spent time sort of breaking it down like really clearly what is my motivation for doing this what does success look like um, if I am going to give up roughly how's that going to work you know what what would it take for me to give up and and my motivation I'm very clear about a difference between, and, and maybe maybe psychologists can can come up with correct terms. It's all stuff I've kind of made up on the hoof. But to me, there's a there's an intrinsic motivation and an extrinsic 
motivation. So extrinsic is, I want to be big and famous and I want to show off to my friends and, you know, whatever. And I find that that is the first to crumble when you're having a tough time on a big event. Okay, and yeah. so I focus very much on the intrinsic, which is um, what are my boundaries? What's it going to feel like when I get to 20 hours into a run or something? How, you know, how, how am I going to deal with that? Am I going to learn and develop and grow as a person from that experience? And kind of going into them curious to learn more about myself is an almost infinite motivator for me because I, I feel I'm learning and growing and what I learn from one event is then transferable to other events but also has been really helpful transferring into other spheres so uh, transferring into work and I got way more switched on at work and way more motivated and excited when I started doing that at work so in okay. a work in a work context it would be like you know initially you might start a career and you would shy away from things that were too difficult and then I got to a point where I thought well actually I'm learning most where I'm pushing myself the most whether it's running or whether it's in work and actually a difficult project is where you're going to learn the most and it might not be your fault that it's all gone wrong but learning how to fix it and put it back together um, is where you learn so um, I've, I've waffled I can't no, remember what the question really, was that's really interesting um, um, yeah the yeah almost sort of um, um, going to the root of well what is what is success and yeah. what is failure because actually uh, I, I suppose an example for me is um, <clears throat> myself and Ez Trisader yeah. tried to do Ramsey's round on our skis yes. <clears throat> and I wrote an article about the whole um, I suppose like the internal uh, turmoil maybe of um, there was a point where Ez thought we should should bail yeah. and uh, I was initially less sure that you know that we should finish um, and there's a bit of conflict there internally and then actually sort of the realisation well actually like doing Ram finishing Ramsey's on, on the skis yeah, that'd be nice. That was the goal, but it's yeah. not the, it's not the only. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of a reason to go out and have this adventure with my friend. So, um, actually, the 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 bigger goal is actually yeah sticking together and having yeah. this experience together, which we've chosen to yes. to do together. And yeah. and at this point, yeah, you know, I'm not saying you could never decide to uh, split from from a pair of you, but. You know, maybe if it was down in the valley in the light of day, yeah. maybe that would have been a different decision. But this is like 20 hours in, in the dark, uh, yeah. on a ridge. And it's like, well, no, you, this is our experience together. And yeah. um, so you could say, yeah, some people could say, well, you didn't do Ramsey's as a failure. But uh, yeah. it was a, like an amazing experience and yeah, yeah. very much a success viewed from yeah. from that sort of uh, side. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so um, I suppose I've talked quite a bit to various people about the big three rounds in the UK mm. on the podcast, so uh, we're not going to talk about them. We've already, we've already mentioned yeah. you've done them, yeah. <laughs> but they're obviously, yeah, um, a lot of hours and experience gone into all that stuff. <laughs> well, well, just to say I'm in awe of what you've done. I, I was like complete, oh, a complete punter uh, by comparison. Uh, I, I, we were just making up as we went along with... Um, but loved it. It was amazing, amazing journey. So yeah, really enjoyed it. 
and and <clears throat> that's something that yeah keeps coming back is that you know people who've done uh, whatever it is you know we've all had these uh, uh, experiences on, on on similar mountains or, mm. or similar rounds at different times yes um, but you know there's a there's a connection there yeah definitely. Um, but yeah I was going to ask you to, to tell us about the John Muir Trail because I don't really know yeah. anything about that um, well I'm, I'm 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 pleased you asked because I think it is something that should be on everybody's bucket list everybody that's that's into the outdoors and into hiking um it is a uh it's a point to point um in the best and highest bit of the high sierras in california and so the northern point is yosemite valley and the southern point it actually officially finishes on the summit of mount whitney which is the highest mountain in contiguous U.S. Um, but in practical terms, you can't just stop on a summit. You've still got to get down to the trailhead. So from trailhead to trailhead is 220 miles. Okay. Um, the majority of people go south and in so doing acclimatise as they go, because Mount Whitney is obviously the highest point. Um, uh, permits are very tightly controlled which is an unusual approach coming from Europe where you can go anywhere anytime um, yeah, okay. it seems slightly ironic that in the land of the free it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very tight permit process and there will be rangers that you will meet who demand to see your permit and if you don't have it you will be marched off and fined um, so the, re- the reason for the permits it, it's actually a it's a pain in the ass, but it is a it is a good thing because the trail is as wild an experience as I've had in my life, and you're on a on a made trail that's maybe half a metre wide, and you're frequently twenty or thirty miles from the nearest road in a landscape where there is no human intrusion whatsoever, other than the trail. So there's okay. no there's no buildings, there's no roads. Um, it's just you and the trail and the mountains, and it, it is wow. spectacularly beautiful. Um, so um, I, I can't remember how I first woke up to it, um, but set about. I was going out for a wedding in 2015, um, and I thought, well, this is a good chance to do it. I don't want to be away from the family for very long. I'd kind of got used to doing one or two longer multi-day things and I thought well I'll use that approach on the John Muir Um, so I set out with a very light bag with four days food heading north because that was the only permit I could get and in hindsight was actually if if you're trying to go quicker it's actually better to go north because you do the harder section early where you've got a full pack and you wouldn't really be running anyway so 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 for example the first day you go up to i'm I'm likely to get the exact numbers wrong but it's like whitney's something like 4400 meters so you know that was whatever it was six hours up and over the top of whitney and then down thousands of meters and then back over forest to pass the same day so my first day was 40 miles and I reached um, where I was camping which was 30 miles from 
any possible exit by myself, tired, hungry, feeling pretty beaten up. And I just thought, my God, what, 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 what have I committed to? I'm not sure I can do this again the next day. And I woke up the next day and, I, you know, you always feel better when you've, when you've slept. Um, and I did, you know, repeated it the next day and the next day. And I got to four days in and I wasn't eating as much of my food as I'd anticipated. And I thought, you know, I was completely by myself. There was no, I didn't, you know, I wasn't being supported or anything. And I just thought, well, with a little bit of uh, managing my remaining food, I can probably finish this without resupplying. And, okay. um, and so I, I kind of fully committed. And I went at four days, I could have come off off trail to a, to a tiny little shop to get more food. And I thought, no, I'm going to see if I can do the whole thing. And so uh, um, I got into Yosemite Valley after five and a half days. So that's averaging 40 miles a day. Um, having carried all my food from the start to the finish. Uh, and I finished with just one packet of tomato, of dehydrated tomato soup. So I was, I was quite hungry. I was quite hungry when I finished. Um, but yeah, what a journey. It was, and I would encourage anybody else to do it. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it sounds really wild and just... Yeah, and just sleeping out under the stars. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's a dry climate. Um, so it's, uh, you can travel very light. So I didn't take a tent. I didn't take a stove. Okay. I didn't take any trousers. Um, I, I sort of judged it that I was either staying warm because I was moving or I was going to be stationary in my sleeping bag. So I didn't, okay. I didn't take any sort of insulating layers. Um, I did it all with a, what's basically a, the size of a, of a Kim sack. Um, and that included a foam mat. So I probably could have taken a smaller bag. And that was with five days food. Or, wow, okay. you know, yeah. So. Food that you made, made last food, five yeah, days. Food yeah. That I, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, nice. So that was, that, was, that was fantastic, yeah. And, and the other one, yeah, I wanted to hear about was, um, I was trying to introduce it, the, the PTL, but you, you'll be much better at telling, telling about it. Um, yeah, um, so, so I guess uh, there is this amazing uh, trail race called the UTMB, which is basically the Tour de Mont Blanc, um, and it's pretty hard to get into, and it's expensive, and so I, I got a place in 2012, and in the final hours, a huge storm came through and they did a, they, they radically altered the course and the new course was totally the right thing to do, but it was frustrating having invested that much time and money to get out there to then have a, a shortened course. Mm. So I came back feeling a little bit, uh, you know, underwhelmed and realised that there was a bigger race as part of the series of UTMB races called... Um, uh, La Petite Trotte en Lyon, so Lyon's little trot, um, which is a much bigger circumference of Mont Blanc, and a it, it was much more of a mountain experience. So you had a proper backpack with proper gear, and uh, it's much more about autonomy. And if the weather's bad, you know you're still out there. They might vary it a bit, but it's still going to be a huge circumnavigation, and it's. It's so steep that, um, ironically, there's actually not a lot of running because it's it's kind of it's got a huge elevation gain. I think something like twenty six thousand meters, 
Um, okay. And so I did it in 2014, and it was amazing. Um, and in, I think in your intro you said um, something like it was in our research. We'd looked online, and and people like I think Spike had done it, and it had been 240k. So all our planning was based on a race that was 240k. Okay. We'd completely missed the fact that the race had, had the the had, had, uh, the course had got longer. It was now 300k. All right. So we finished we finished on the Sunday morning, and our flight home was Sunday lunchtime. And it was that was that was quite hard work. Um, and then and then the obviously all the good memories remained and uh, forgot all of the all of the suffering. And so 2016 went back and did it again. Um, and uh, it's uh, yeah, I mean it's an amazing way to see the Alps. And you're on frequently on on on. Uh, open countryside you're not on the big main trails you're seeing uh, wild bits and and very steep rocky bits some via ferrata some glacier some i think we had to take axe and crampons and helmet um okay. I, and in order to do the whole race within the cutoff you're um you you, you basically sleep becomes the variable um so we were doing we did it both times on a, a maximum of maybe two hours sleep a night Ooh. so the first night's fine second night you're a bit tired third night you're pretty tired fourth night on both years the fourth night um started to get some really quite good value sort of hallucinations <laughs> um but then that you know it makes for a memorable experience and that means you're pushing yourself and you're learning more about yourself and Seeing all, yeah, sorts of, never, seeing all sorts of wacky stuff. Never, I've got that hallucination <laughs> stage still to come. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so, so uh, yeah, the, the what, what one that I can't remember if it was fourteen or sixteen, but twenty fourteen or twenty sixteen. But uh, on that fourth night, Jason was seeing milking parlors in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. It's like, uh, yeah, no, no, that's that's a boulder. <laughs> Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll stop at that refuge. Uh, no, no, that's that's a boulder as well. <laughs> it just went on the whole night, and I was speaking all sorts of nonsense to him as well. Um, so yeah, so PTR, yeah, it's good. What, yeah, go and do it. Memorable experience. Yeah, and very different from the sort of the circus of UTMB. Yeah, uh, it, it, it couldn't be busyness. further. It yeah. couldn't be further. It's it's. Uh, I think UTMB is maybe two and a half thousand people, and the PTL is maybe three hundred. So it's a totally different experience, um, and you're you're frequently totally by yourself. Um, so yeah, that was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, before talking about Pacific Crest Trail, um, could you tell us a bit about what was happening in sort of late twenty eighteen when you were? I think you were fifty, weren't you? Yeah, point? yeah. So. Um, yeah, 2018 was uh, was you know it's good, good, good year, um, and was fit and healthy. Um, so in the September of that year, um, I don't know about eight, ten of us from Edinburgh went out on an organised trip, and there's a, there's a, a classic challenge to cycle the Pyrenees coast to coast over the Tour de France cols called the Raid Pyrenees, and you try and do it in 100 hours. And if if you cycle a lot, it's not it, it's a it's a very achievable it's 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 a, it's a challenge but it's a very achievable challenge um and so I did that and loved it and uh, 
I mentioned that just because it's an illustration that things were going well. I was I was fit and healthy. Sure. And then a month later, maybe six weeks later, I was cycling in the borders with some of the same friends, and it was a very cold, wet day, and there was a long descent into Duns in the borders, and I got chilled to the bone, and I couldn't warm up, and we stopped in a pub because it was so cold to try and warm up, and um, really from that point of the ride onwards, my mates would all sprint up all of the hills, and and I, I would lose sight of them. They would be so far ahead, and that's not a problem, but it was just not how it had ever been before. You know, I was comfortably keeping up with these friends, and I'd get to the top wheezing and just struggling to breathe, and um, finish the ride ignored it but it was like I'd suddenly developed asthma and it was like I'd developed quite uh, a severe asthma so a local run and I went maybe 500 meters and and I just couldn't get enough oxygen to turn my legs and I just I was like well that that's never happened before so I walked home after 500 meters and then a few days later I went to the climbing wall and I'd get to the top of a climb and I would be on the cusp of passing out just from lack of oxygen and then walking out of the climbing centre up the stairs each each short flight I would stop hands on knees and it was it reminded me very much of being at altitude you know maybe five six thousand meters you know like okay like and that was permanent and Jane could hear it when I was sleeping I couldn't speak in sentences I had to Every sentence was chopped between really big breaths to try and get the oxygen. Um, anyway, went to the doctor and it, it very rapidly progressed. So uh, GP uh, phoned when I got home, sent for an x-ray, phoned that evening, summoned in to hospital for the next grade of scan, phoned that evening, summoned in the next day for the next grade of scan. So this is all in the space of about three days. And I thought the NHS was just efficient. And I had no idea that things were so advanced that kind of every day counted. And on the th after the third scan, I got summoned in to the respiratory clinic because that's what the problem was, was I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. And I thought I was, by this stage, I knew that the scans were showing I had two litres of fluid on my right lung. And so when I went into the consultant in the, res uh, the respiratory ward at, uh, at, at, in the hospital in Edinburgh, I assumed that I was going in to have that dealt with, to have it drained off. And the consultant was a little bit shifty, and he said, oh, no, just, if you just wait for a minute, I just need to set the room up, which I thought meant set the surgery room up. And when we did eventually come through, it was a small consulting room, and thankfully I had Jane there. And as I walked in, the consultant was sitting with his fingers in a pyramid. And as I sat down, it was just that, this is going to be something really serious. And it was like a, uh, yeah, I, I, I and, and, and anyway, so he said, uh, he said, yes, you've got fluid in your lung. And uh, the, the working hypothesis at this stage is 
it's lymphoma. And I, I'd kind of never heard, I mean, I'd heard of the term, but I didn't know what it meant. And, and I kind of was like, well, uh, uh, you know, is that, is that terminal? And he said, oh, no, 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 it's definitely, it's definitely one of the better cancers. <laughs> I was just like, cancer? Where the hell did that come from? It's like not, not in my family, it's not my friends, my whole lifestyle is, is fit and healthy and a reasonable diet. Um, and, and thank God that Jane was there because she could then listen to all the rest of what he had to say, which was excellent and delivered in the best way, but I just, I couldn't hear anything else he said. It's like, cancer, I've got cancer. Where the hell did that come from? Anyway. Um, the brain, it just, yeah, it just shut, shut off. It just shut word. off. It was just and that word. So, um, and I just, it was so much to, to, to consider in that one word. And, a, and so that was maybe the Wednesday. And then um, the following Monday, I started six rounds of a really heavy duty chemo. Um, so I had a lymph lymphoma as a type of blood cancer, and I had this very large tumor spanning across my abdomen. So the tumor was 16 centimeters, and they normally start chemo at seven centimeters. So it had been growing for a long time, and um, because your lymphatic system is kind of I suppose parallel to your blood system for transporting um, things like your wet blood cells. <clears throat> it's it's kind of a system-wide problem, and therefore the chemo needs to be pretty heavy duty to get from your toes to the top of your head, wherever your lymph is. Um, so yeah, I started six rounds of fairly heavy duty chemo, and uh, it was an awful lot to process that I had cancer, I had a very large tumour, I had substantial problems with my with my lung lungs. Um, my breathing capacity was about 40% of what it should have been. Um, and I was just starting this really hideous chemo regime. So I kind of was kind of beginning to process this. Uh, and then just kind of the bottom fell out of my world and I had six emergency admissions um, four of which were probably immediately life-threatening in the space of just a few weeks um, and I think everything had got so critical that uh, it really didn't take much for any event to become life-threatening because my body was so at its limit already and I was on a really hideous chemo regime, and I had no immunity from the chemo. Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, other than that, it was great. <laughs> um, and and you know, I, 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 I say all of this really from a position of, of just almost infinite gratitude that they picked it up when they did, that I had the love and the support of Jane and the kids and my family and my friends. The NHS were beyond amazing that all of this happened to me pre-COVID, it would have been horrific, like doubly horrific through through um, through COVID. Um, so, and yeah. and I think we you know we could spend a whole episode. Yeah, sorry, just, I probably went no, on too long. No, it's yeah. I mean I think just for uh, for I mean I'm a GP, so I speak to people about cancer and about chemotherapy, um, but I think. Um, 
you know, for someone who's fit and healthy who actually hasn't had to experience this before, it's just so yeah. hard to to mm. kind of imagine what just how how crappy you're going to feel, just how wiped out. Yeah. Um, and like you said, you're sort of you're just processing. You only just it sounds like things progressed really quickly with your treatment. Yeah. Um, because they needed to, but yeah. you're only just processing the word cancer, and then you're yeah. straight on to chemotherapy, which yeah. is which is making you feel yeah. horrific. And I think yes, um, you um, you had all sorts of things like chest drains, and every one of these things is a yeah. is a is a huge ordeal in it in itself, and a new a new horror. Maybe you could say. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. I mean, I, I, I don't want to bore you or, or your listeners, but yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot, um, and we could probably spend the whole episode talking about it, which which I, I think would probably bore everybody. But yeah, uh, the, the chest drain was one detail, and that was uh, so I had a manual chest drain, which was unpleasant, and then I had uh, a permanent drain fitted, which was weeks of very unpleasantness. Um, and then towards the end, that no longer was draining the fluids, so I had a third manual drain. Um, uh, so yeah, that was that was all pretty unpleasant. And and that how long would you say that <clears throat> that period was from when you you know you'd gone from being <clears throat> fit, climbing yeah. f- fine basically to um, you know sort of to finishing treatment? How how long was that? Um, so I started on the seventh of December. 2018 chemo and I finished on the 15th of April 2019 and my memory is pretty rubbish nowadays but it's amazing how those those dates I'll I'll always remember those dates Um, so it was uh, and and my treatment things got so bad that uh, twice they it, it was it was it was really clear all through my treatment that to give me so, so my type of lymphoma, unlucky because they can treat it, but they can't cure it. So they'll treat it. I get a chunk of remission where I'm completely normal. It will come back and get treated again, and then I'll get a shorter remission, treated, shorter remission. So I kind of think of it a bit like half-life, I suppose. And um, I forgot what your question was. Um, um, yeah, sorry, I've yeah. Totally, totally forgot what the question was. I'll come back to it. Yeah, well, I suppose, yeah. Um, next question, I suppose, was <coughs> clearly. Sorry, how, sorry. How, how long? How long was my treatment? So, yeah. so, um, so, yeah. So, so it, it lasted through till mid-April, but in that period, I went from being so I started relatively fit and healthy, and by the end of it, I felt utterly utterly destroyed and my uh my mind was still my same same you know same brain it was fogged yes. through all of the chemo and i definitely felt uh less mentally sharp for quite a while which i think is very common with with strong chemo uh but what was hardest to adapt to was my same brain, my same thoughts were now connected to an entirely different body that I didn't recognise. And so I guess the nearest I can imagine is if you watch a very, very old person, 
like a 90 year old walking down the street that was kind of where I was at and so come April the 15th I um, it, it it felt like I'd I'd, I'd learned and absorbed so much that I'd lived another lifetime really in that in that period um, and with with a, a fairly uncertain future because I just didn't know what I was going to be capable of you know I did, I, there were periods where it was a struggle getting from the hospital bed so I was in hospital a lot it was hard getting from the hospital bed just to the toilet and that was maybe 15 meters um, I was going for loads of scans through my treatment and I was put in a wheelchair <laughs> I was just like uh, you know I've finished the petit I, I'm, I'm not showing off but you know I've just done a 300k yes. race with 26,000 meters of ascent and you're now putting me in a wheelchair to wheel me 100 meters down the corridor um, it was quite a transition yeah and and how did that sort of yeah that massive change in uh, physical ability if, if we could call it say it like that like how did that how did your goals and your and your priorities change throughout that time and I suppose finishing chemo you know going forward from there like what um i um yeah I, so because i hadn't really been exposed to the world of cancer before not i mean i obviously i knew of people but it wasn't it wasn't something i was closely um ex didn't have close experience of and i guess i just saw how indiscriminate it is Mm -hmm. and that it affects a whole swathe of people in a totally random way. You can improve your chances, but it's still, you know, I tried to improve my chances, I still, I still got it. And uh, the guy, I remember the guy in the bed next to me when I was in over Christmas, uh, when I, was, I had days of 40 degrees fever, which, which I, n I now know in itself is, you know, is, is, is seriously bad. Um, so he was going through equally awful treatment. He was equally unwell, uh, and he was doing all of this so that he could try to learn to walk again for the final three months of his life. So he was he was dying. He knew he was dying, and he was going through all of this awful stuff I was going through just just to try and make his last three months a bit better. And I came out just feeling so grateful that I'd survived and so grateful for all the care and love and attention that I'd had that um, I guess the immediate sense when I got home was um, I've heard other cancer survivors describe it as like hyper-reality and that the world is such a amazing and beautiful place when you actually slow down and stop to appreciate it and you know the colours, the wind in your hair, the leaves, the birdsong, um, even just people walking past me in the park, um, just going about their lives, just that just filled me with so much joy and and so much. Um, I, I was just so grateful that I was still alive. I, I really, there were periods where I really didn't think I was going to live, um, and. So I guess that state of sort of blissfulness lasted 
Uh, I mean, I still have traces of that now. I'm still, every morning, just feel really grateful that I'm alive. Um, and I think it's affected me because I think, for example, you're much clearer about what you want your life to be and you're much more comfortable about making choices and making tuning your life to, to do what you want to do. Um, so I didn't work for the rest of 2019. My employers were amazing and took me back start of 2020. And on the advice of, I, I had an occupational health doctor assessment um, and their recommendation was I go back half time. And that was perfect sort of mentally and physically. Um, and they gave the best advice and said, look, when you're reintegrating with work after what you've been through, your first two weeks you want to do like half an hour a week. And I just laughed. It's like, it, you know, that's ridiculous. I'm not even going to sit down and do anything. And said, no, trust us. And then the next two weeks, do an hour a week and then and just build it up like that. Very gradual. Very yeah. gradual. And, and so I kind of went into this thinking this is all a bit ridiculous. And the first day my first half hour, maybe it was an hour, I can't remember, uh, I came home and I slept. I was absolutely shattered. And it took, they were totally right. Like the classic mistake is people go back in straight to the original intensity and they just blow up and it doesn't work and they end up having to leave the job. Whereas for me it works and I was happy and stayed working half time all the way through till, well, all, all the way through COVID and then um, through to February of this year. Do you, do you think... Um, I, I don't know if that answered your question. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I think this is all yeah, really interesting to, to hear about. Yeah. Um, do, do, you, uh, do you feel that anything that you'd learnt, maybe from endurance-type activities, the resilience of that, do you think any of that, uh, or mentally or otherwise, was, was useful like in, in, in yeah. as a tool through this period? Yeah, so I went into it thinking I have developed a uh, my own sort of method or approach for things that require a bit of suffering and that's I suppose when I mentioned before about just for example the mental side just being really clear about why I'm doing something motivation and all the rest of it yeah. and I thought this this will be helpful and and I guess I was flawed because things got so bad and so utterly beyond any limit I'd ever experienced before. I guess it made me realize that all the stuff I'd done physically to that point had been kind of like a sea change in terms of progression. And I was now going through not just a step change, but like a kind of cliff you know I'd, I'd I'd fallen so far that I couldn't recognize my own body how it was feeling what different pain that and I'd, I'd never suffered like that level of pain before and what it meant and how serious it was and and when my breathing collapsed one day and I went off in a uh, you know I only just made it to a hospital um, it, it's like you can't even recognise your own body anymore. Totally new metrics. Totally, you, totally, yeah. you didn't have anything yeah. to, to compare. So, yeah. so, so, 
the there was there was quite a chunk for certainly through the first two rounds of chemo, so that's at least six weeks. That um, I, I guess my primary um, uh, f- focus really was was just raw survival, and each each day was just doing that. Um, okay, bye. Um, a, so just, just yeah, just just uh, focusing hour to hour, just on 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 surviving, and that was dark and difficult. And I remember, I, I give this as an illustration because I think if somebody says it was difficult, it, you can't really quantify it. Um, I get on great with my family, and uh, my, my my dad died two thousand and eight, but my mum was still very much is still very much alive, and she was obviously very anxious. And she lives in London, so she was phoning frequently just to see how I was doing. Yeah. And things were so ragged and so at the limit that I had to say to her at one point, I, I, can't, I can't do these calls anymore. I, I don't have the energy to give you the reassurance you need that I'm doing okay. I, 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 can't, I can't do that. It's it's basically a polite version of saying, not stop calling, but um, I have one one of my three brothers is where he retired as a GP just as my lymphoma diagnosis came through, but he became kind of my contact with the outside world. So I would keep him appraised, partly because he knew all the medical stuff, but he would then disseminate it to the rest of the family. Um, So... Uh, there was a kind of a surviving stage and then that became enduring stage where I loathed the chemo in it, it, it's it's hard to describe how unpleasant it was um, but I guess the best summary is to say that there was a long period of enduring um, and there was a long period where things were it, I was hoping that things were going to be stabilizing or getting better, but actually they were getting worse before they got better. So, uh, you know, the various very high fevers that put me in hospital for weeks, the the, the, the chest strain, um, a whole bunch of other 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 stuff going on. And it was only after the third round of chemo, and I very very nearly stepped off. It was that it was that grim, and and I was told repeatedly, I need to take six to get the best chance at a decent remission. Okay. Um, and after three, I very nearly stopped and just thought, you know what, <laughs> that's fine. I've had a good life. I'm, w- I'm, willing to take, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take my chances. And uh, But somehow after the third round, I did turn a corner. And I think in simple terms, the chemo had shrunk the tumour enough that the chest fluid had dried up so the chest drain the permanent one could come out and that from that stage um, I think people find each round of chemo progressively harder because you're injecting the same toxins into a weaker body Mm -hmm. but for me after the third round and and the tumor shrunk and the drain came out I actually stabilized and felt almost like I was in a gentle, like I wasn't recovering, 
but I didn't feel I was getting worse. So not getting worse was a, was a huge improvement for me, if that makes sense. And it was only at that point that I could start to deploy a lot of the stuff I've learned from long events. And that would be um, a, just focusing a day at a time. So maybe, I suppose I'd done that all the way through, but that was probably more just survival, really. Um, but yeah, from the third round, uh, I was able to use that sort of technique of just focusing on, on the present, not worrying about the future, not worrying about work or, I don't know, whatever stuff you worry about. And that was all I thought about. Um, and then at about the same time, I would, it was almost like a mantra that as I was falling asleep at night, I would build a sort of like a gratitude list of, of all the little mini gains that I'd achieved. And it would be, uh, I'm not in hospital, I'm not on uh, IV antibiotics, I'm not getting blood tests every day, I don't have a cannula in my arm, um, I'm not on this horrific, I, I, I was put on a, a really difficult diet to try to mitigate some of my symptoms. I'm not on this stupid diet anymore. Um, I don't have the chest strain so I can I can actually sleep. So for the long periods I couldn't turn because the chest strain um was <laughs> was was like morphine levels. You know, I, I, I was yeah. for a period I was on morphine maximum dose and then in between I was on codeine maximum dose just to just to try and suppress some 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 of the pain. Um and so just just being really conscious of all the things to be grateful for and there were many things to be grateful for and I guess fundamentally feeling lucky that I'd survived I suppose um, and uh, sometimes people would say you know you've, you've been really unlucky because I, um, <laughs> I, <coughs> I broke my back in 2016 I, I had a climbing accident and broke four vertebrae which which was which was totally my fault but um, combination of that and then having cancer people sometimes would say oh you know you've been really unlucky and that's just not it's just not how I feel I feel I've been incredibly lucky because I completely back to normal after my back and and my remission after finishing chemo is I'm 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 now completely back to normal three and a half years later so, um, okay and and <clears throat> in terms of um, what you're able to do physically as well would, would you say where are you on that sort of level um, so uh, I was I was a bit tentative. Um, so I finished the fifteenth of April. Maybe a week later, I was climbing outdoors very gently with some pals. Maybe three months later, I was out in the States, um, and a good climbing friend out there, Tom Roberts, suggested doing a classic climb. Maybe you've done it in Ptolemy called Icon Pinnacle. Which is a, it's like a classic, really pointy peak. Um, I can't. It's on the back of uh, Cathedral. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. And it's very photogenic. Um, and and sort of old brain was like, yeah, this will be absolutely fine. And then new brain was like, this is like a three, three hour walk in. I, I don't know if I can do a three hour walk in. And then when I get there, it's going to be. I, I, I forgive me if I get the exact details wrong, but it's maybe five pitches. It's like I don't know if I can do five pitches, and then it's a three-hour walk out. 
It's like, um, and I just thought, well, I'm lucky to be alive, and <laughs> I'm lucky to be with somebody that is, um, you know, knows me well enough to know what I've been through and to be sympathetic, and and hopefully he'll understand if I can't do it. And so we set off, and it was one of you know absolutely amazing. Getting back into exercise, uh, so th so three months I was in the states, and then um, uh, and then um, I, I, one of the really helpful things when when things were really bad in hospital was dreaming escapism. So I I, I dreamt of doing a long hike because I figured I probably should be able to walk at some point after I finish all of this. Um, and and so I, I I I sort of dreamt of a hike, and I was able to furnish it hour by hour, day by day, in in, in the hospital bed, with uh, how I was going to do it, what I was going to take, um, you know, the approach, just just all of the details, and it was it was a brilliant mental strategy because you could just escape from where you were and just be in the mountains, um, and so uh, the original hike which we might come to in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bit um for various reasons i realized wasn't going to be practical and so at the 11th hour switched and ended up walking across the pyrenees with my brother rob which was a wonderful journey in so many ways uh you know i suppose most obviously sharing it with rob who'd been right at the heart of my care and my journey so um so that was that was really good. Um, physically, I, I I just felt myself improving like day by day, step by step, and even things like my chest strain, I still felt like my lung lining was slightly sticky, maybe from from the scar of the pipe going in, um, and because I was in fresh air every day, exercising every day, I just felt that loosened to the point that it completely disappeared. And I wonder, with some people with chest strains, maybe they have that feeling permanently, but for, for me it went. And and perhaps most valuable of that trip was um, emotionally, I could just start to kind of come to terms with everything that I'd been through. And I, I, I suppose I feel a bit wary using the word trauma, but I guess that's kind of what it felt like you know it felt like i'd been through a really traumatic episode and just being able to walk and have these amazing views and just be able to just contemplate and run through everything that i'd been through it was almost like um it reminds me of i suppose of really big runs that sometimes it takes a while to after you finish to process all the stuff that's happened and for the yeah, memories okay. to form i suppose it was it was like that but for a traumatic event rather than for a happy event, I suppose. Um, so it's probably difficult yeah. for Rob because I think I was probably quite silent and he was looking to chat all the time, but he was very understanding and, and uh, gave me lots of space. And, and so it was very cathartic to do that. And, and uh, yeah, the whole, the whole process, how was that on your family? How, how did they cope with it? Yeah, uh, I... Um, I, I uh, it's it's an excellent question because I think the danger with these things is focusing 
solely on the person who is going through the hard time. And actually something like this affects the family probably just as much. You know, Jane was keeping the show on the road and sorting out all the kids and the kids were going to school and um, it must have been really tough for them and so much uncertainty. I guess the one word that underpins all of this is is uncertainty. You, 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 you know, it's come out of nowhere. It's pretty serious. You don't know how it's going. You don't know how it's going to end. You don't know if you're going to survive. Um, and I remember Lauren overhearing her early in my treatment, um, just asking Jane, you know, is, is dad going to die? And it's like, and James like, well, yeah, he might do, but hopefully he won't. And we, we very early on, um, came to this agreement with, with the kids. So they were all sort of mid teenagers, I guess, at that stage, early to mid teens. Um, and we just said, look, we're, we're going to share everything with you guys on condition that you share everything the other way. So if you're feeling sad, anxious, worried, you've got questions that you share those with us. Um, and for our family and our kids, that seemed to work. It wasn't, it wasn't part of some master plan. That was just what felt natural for, for us. Um, and Jane did an amazing job and kept the show on the road. And I think she must have had lots of kind of what if questions herself, but then people would frequently ask her and say, well, what if this and what happens next? And, um, and, and Jane very wisely just, just kind of hunkered down and just right. well, we've got a treatment plan and we're just taking it one day at a time. And yep, there's these bigger things. I don't know. I'm not going to worry about it. Just take it a day at a time. So I guess for other people going through difficult experiences, maybe, Maybe that approach will, will, will help you. And uh, she also got very good at sort of just working out that all of the help, when people are helping, that it kind of comes in the way that you're not um, burdening with your own problems and your own cancer journeys or whatever if it's not relevant. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think it, it goes without saying. Um, I'm, I'm so glad we're able to have this conversation. Yeah. You're here. You're back doing, you know, things you love. Um, I, thanks for that part of the conversation. I wonder if we could shift tack to something really quite different now. Sure, sure. Um, and I, I really wanted to get you to tell us um, about the the roof crack, the Edinburgh <laughs> roof crack. Uh, climbing, which, um, which, yeah, um, I think was a, was was born of necessity of lockdown, perhaps. Um, um, yeah, I, 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 your, your listeners might need um, a bit of a description of just how ridiculous a project this was. But um, so it, it, I live live and work in Edinburgh, and uh, lockdown was. Uh, the boundary of Edinburgh plus a little bit of the local hills um, and a, I was walking or cycling along the canal uh, and noticed these uh, perfect parallel cracks in the underside of a fairly new concrete bridge um, 
and it must have been at about the same time as I probably saw one or two little social media clips. There's a, a friend who's a, a pro climber in, it, from Edinburgh called Robbie Phillips, and he he did some very entertaining little videos of attempting to climb this crack, which he succeeded on. Um, and um, we've got three kids, uh, and Lauren's really into cycling and, and walking, and uh, the two younger ones, Jack and Bella, um, are really into climbing. And so, so through treatment, I could sometimes do little bike rides and walks and things with Lauren, and could be climbing with with Jack and Bella. And so we just got inspired, and it was, it felt like the perfect project because the first attempt, it immediately felt so ludicrously hard and beyond what we could do that you just think, well, this is this is not going to work. Except, <sighs> except there was like five percent that did work, and like there must be some magic threshold that's just enough to give you the faith to come back the second time. And by the second time, you have like a 6% faith that it's possible. And then the third time, it's like 7% faith. So you you were definitely progressing and making reasonable progress the first few visits to the point where you think, okay, if I really, if I, if I properly apply myself and train, maybe this will work. And it's not like I'm going anywhere else. I'm, 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 I'm Edinburgh bound for the next three months. Um, and so chipped away and got more and more obsessed and tried anything that we could think of that would give us an edge. Uh, the, 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 the major limitations were um, it really bruises your hands. So you're, you're climbing in completely smooth, parallel concrete roof cracks. So you're only staying in, kind of hanging upside down like a bat, by the sheer force that you can put into scrunching up your hands, not into a fist, it wasn't big enough for a fist, but somewhere between, if you put your, you put your hand vertically like a sort of vertical dagger, and then the other extreme would be a complete fist, so somewhere halfway between the two, so it's like a flexed hand, and the power that you can force through that flexed hand against the walls of the concrete crack, and then sticking your toes in and twisting them means that you can hang upside down like a bat. So that's kind of okay, that's not too hard to do for a few seconds, but then to start moving, so you're having to remove a hand so you feel like you're going to fall out, and then you have to remove a foot so you feel like you're going to fall out, and then you're basically shuffling along this crack. Um, <laughs> I, spent, I spent six weeks probably trying to do one crack. So there's two bridges, and so you kind of learn on the bridge by Murrayfield Rugby Stadium because it's it's above a concrete flood uh, plain, I suppose. It's only a metre and a half. So your mates can follow you with a bouldering mat. <clears throat> and I could get to 18 metres. Within a week or two, I could get to 18 metres every time. And I just could not finish the last two metres. It got a lot narrower. So you were kind of back to almost just a dagger of a hand and the amount of force is, is kind of magnified if, if, if you can only get that sort of flattish hand in. And with Jack and Bella, they're a lot younger and a lot better than me. So they, could, they, could, they start to be able to do this. Uh, and maybe it's also, it's not just fitness and youth, but maybe their hands were smaller. 
So that meant more hand in, so that meant more power going through it. Okay. Um, anyway, long story short, I, I put everything into this. <laughs> Eventually made it to the, to the end of this climb and I was so, so happy. It was just like all my Christmases had arrived. And so immediately, I think that day, I went back to the Canal Bridge, which is a place called Megatland, to try Robbie Phillips' roof crack. And everybody had said to me, you need to get really good at Murrayfield because Megatland over the canal is higher above the water and harder, meaning narrower cracks. Okay. So I launched in. I was you know, full of confidence because I'd just done Murrayfield. And I got halfway across and I just had this horrible, this isn't going to work. <laughs> I can't go back. And I can't continue, and I really don't want to fall in the canal because it's just the most fetid, infectious cesspit. Uh, and, and so I grunted a lot and made all sorts of, uh, you know, desperate attempts, and, uh, and I fell in, fell into the canal. Um, uh, tail between my legs, and I thought, this is never, this is just beyond me, I can't. I've given everything to get across the bridge 20 metres at, at, at Murrayfield. I, I, what else can I do to improve my game to get across the harder crack at Megatland? Um, and so I was feeling a bit sort of tail between my legs. And then I was at work at my desk. And then a calendar po appointment popped up on my computer at work. And it said, in a week's time, is going to be my second anniversary of finishing chemo. Really? And it was like, that's a special day for me. It's like... Um, it's like a chemoversary, and um, and I thought, you know what? I'm thinking of this the wrong way around. I need to think of my second anniversary as being a really memorable life experience. I don't have to think about succeeding at something. I just need to do something that's going to be significant and that I remember. And what could be more significant than going with two of my kids back to this bridge and having another go and just kind of relaxing into it and 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 if it's if if if, if i get across that would be amazing and if i don't it'll be a really memorable i'll be learning and it'll be a really memorable experience and i went back because uh, there's no more physical training i could do in a week <clears throat> and i went back uh and a and i got across <laughs> and i made it all the way across I, I i i was elated for weeks absolutely weeks um, and I think that's a direct result of, you know, of surviving and, 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 you know, getting through chemo. I guess it makes you uh, grateful and it makes you determined and it makes you want to seize every day and do, do stuff that's, that's going to be good and big and memorable. So, long, uh, yeah, Which sorry. leads us on Another to Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, I just don't want to give another long, boring answer. Um, so, so when I was escaping in hospital, the trail that I was dreaming of doing was the Pacific Crest Trail. And that was partly because I'd got a glimpse on the John Muir. So the John Muir is 10% of the Pacific Crest. It's, it's the same trail, just like that 10% is called the John Muir Trail through the High Sierra. Okay. But the, 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 trail, the, the, the actual trails are, are completely coincident for that that 220 mile uh, section um so i dreamt of doing the pct and when i finished chemo i realized that 
I couldn't do that in 2019 for various reasons. Um, and then COVID. And then this year, uh, 2022, yeah, was, was you know, a good year and fun stuff going on. And it was actually Jane in February said, look, your cancer is going to come back and it's going to be a real kick in the teeth when it comes back if all you've done in the interim is bury yourself back at work and you need to stop every now and again so that you can do some of the other things you want to do so when your cancer comes back you've actually restocked on some of those positive life experiences um, and I suppose it's also a bit like <clears throat> it's kind of doing some of the stuff you would have done in retirement now because I might not make it to retirement age um, and I'm okay about that as well I, 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 it kind of comes back to this I feel like I've been given a, a really big second chance at life so I'm not I'm, I'm glass half full about every day and, and the opportunities they present um, and so yeah I, I set about getting my stuff together for the PCT and um, the hard bit again is getting the permit so I was really lucky so they give permits to control the numbers controlling the numbers means that the trail is, is, a, is a proper wilderness experience from start to finish and even things like resupplying for food it's not like you walk past shops you, you come off the trail so okay. when, when, they, when they talk about the PCT being 2,650 miles, that's the trail. But to get food, you've got to do extra miles to come off the trail and back onto the trail. Okay. Um, and a, But it starts with getting a permit, and the permits are issued from the start of March. The start date is the start of March, the end of May. And by the time I got through the ballot, I was lucky. I got a permit for the 27th of May, which is coincidentally is my birthday. So it's like, well, this is obviously meant to be. For most people, that's a really late start. And that means you will be going through the first 700 miles of desert in very hot temperatures with very little water. Um, but for me, I was always planning to do it in more of a sort of John Muir style of, of going lightweight and going a bit faster. Um, so actually, for me, that was the perfect start date because okay. I would get through the desert okay and I would then get to the high Sierras where most of the worst, well, worst is the wrong word, but most of the snowpack had melted and then I would get up to the northern terminus before the winter storms started. So, that, so f there's always compromise with any start date because you're, <laughs> you're, you're covering a lot of ground. Uh, but for me, trying to do it in three months, that was that was um, that was the perfect start date, um, and uh, I finished in eighty-eight days. So I was quite pleased. Yeah. Well, um, what was what was like? I suppose I was going to ask about, about a typical day, but I think you've kind of alluded to. You were going through these very different um, landscapes, uh, landscapes and yeah. desert into high mountains yeah. into um, different different landscapes. So, I, I suppose in terms of maybe like hours uh, walking and sleeping, what, what was that like on a typical day? Um, so, uh, so, so, so uh, yes, the, the um, you're covering enough ground that 
that you are literally walking, I suppose, from one climate, one geography, I suppose, to another. So you're, you, you're always sort of gradually evolving how you're doing it and what you're taking. But perhaps the constant was you do develop a routine that um, is, is kind of a bit like a, almost like a meditation in a way, I suppose, that your, your life distills to a state where you're either walking, eating or sleeping. So it's, it's a beautifully simple way to live. And, and, and generally, if you're not doing one of those, you're thinking about or planning towards one of those. Um, and so the routine for me was, um, I typically wake at about five. Uh, I would have been what they call cowboy camping, which is just sleeping under the stars, which I absolutely loved. Yeah. So you've got these staggering night skies. Um, I could pack, I, I had very little stuff with me, so I could pack, I could wake, pack and be walking in about 15 minutes. Okay. So, so I'd be on the trail and I'd walk for about half an hour, it, it starting by head torch in the dark through dawn to the sun actually being up. And after maybe half an hour of hiking, I would have <clears throat> my muesli or, or porridge. So I, I didn't take a stove. I had a like a, a large empty plastic tub, like an empty peanut butter jar. So the night before I would soak my porridge or my muesli and so when I was hiking, after about half an hour of hiking in the morning, I'd start eating my muesli, and that would usually last, I don't know, for an hour of, you know, a bit of food. And I'd, I'd still be walking. I wouldn't be sitting down to eat. Um, and then after maybe two hours, I'd have a second breakfast. <laughs> so, I mean, okay. your, your calorie consumption just goes through the roof after <laughs> about three weeks or maybe four weeks. Um, I, so I'd start hiking maybe 5.15, 5.30, I'd hike through till about 10.30. So I'd, do, I'd aim to do about five hours. Um, and I'd sit down, uh, have a pretty decent mid-morning snack and maybe half an hour just just to eat. Um, and then I'd, I'd, I'd hike again through till probably maybe 2.30, 3.30 for lunch. And I'd stop for maybe 45 minutes. Uh, I would always swim if there was an option first 700 miles there's very little water so first 700 miles I swam two or three times but by the Sierras I, and the Sierras beyond I was swimming every day um, and I would then hike through till maybe 5pm 6pm at which point I would soak my dinner so that was typically um, some sort of instant noodles some dry potato, a little sachet of <coughs> of tuna, <coughs> and I'd let that soak for half an hour, and maybe about six o'clock, as I was hiking, I would eat that, and that was probably the best energy of the day because you had all of that calories. So from six p.m. up until it get dark about eight thirty, um, I'd feel like Superman. I'd probably the best of the day, um, and from about eight thirty, I'd start looking for nice places to stop and I was always a bit fussy you know I wanted somewhere nice and flat with a, a view and and um and so sometimes you know you might still be hiking until nine by head torch very occasionally nine thirty, ten. yeah and then, and then I'd already eaten so I could set up 
for cowboy camping, which was just a, a, a sheet, a camping mat, a sleeping bag. So I could go from hiking to being in my sleeping bag asleep probably in about 20 minutes. Uh, and I'd be pretty trashed by the end of the day. And I'd be thinking, hmm, that was quite a long day. And I knew from all the other stuff not to make any decisions or adjustments based on how I felt going to sleep. It was always how I felt the next morning after half an hour of walking. Okay. And I would say 19 times out of 20, the next day, it's like a Duracell bunny. I just felt absolutely fine. I'd recovered, I'd slept seven or eight hours, and, and I would repeat. And the only time I could tell that I was getting tired was, was often after, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks. Certainly at the beginning, I wasn't taking many rest days. I could start to feel it going uphill. You know, I could start to feel it in my legs. And it was like, okay, I probably need um, some time off. And to begin with, I could get away with just taking half a day and that would bring me back to normal. I'd carry on. Um, and I suppose the other, the, other, the other observation was was at night time lying down and these places were so wild and so beautiful and I was frequently completely by myself, miles from anybody. So I really should write some of this down. You know, I've had so many amazing, I've seen so many amazing things and experiences. I'll, I'll, um, I'll write it when I'm, just before I go to bed and I'd lie in my sleeping bag. I'd be there for two minutes looking at the stars and then fast asleep. I'll write something tomorrow <laughs> and I'll get to tomorrow. Two minutes later, fast asleep. But I just thought, you know, for once in my life, actually just living in the moment and just absorbing what I'm going through and just enjoying it. And um, it was, it was, a, it was a, a, you know, self-indulgent. And Jane was very generous to kind of encourage me to do it. But it was a wonderful thing to do. And I guess kind of going back again, I'm sorry, to my cancer journey, which felt like I'd lived another life just with how many intense experiences I'd had not good experiences yeah this felt like I'd lived another life but of positive experiences so okay. um so yeah um uh, so yeah that's, that's a bit um, of piece too. John, John Morgan uh was telling me how you've you've always been he's got an ollie sack which yeah. you stitched up um <laughs> for him uh, on a sewing machine like 20 years ago that he still uses. Wow. And uh, you've always been very interested in, in making things like functional and lightweight and not having any yeah. extra stuff. Was that, um, how, how important was that in your approach to doing this sort of fast packing journey? Uh, I think it made a big difference. And I think there was a very simple uh, metric on trail that the people with the smallest packs were doing the biggest days. And not in a not in a sort of macho pain kind of way, but just in a you're carrying less stuff, you can go further, and it's easier, and you're not trashing your body as much. Um, so uh, <laughs> it did take a little while to kind of get into the language. There's the the trail has its own kind of language, if you like, its own lexicon. Um, but for early on, from the beginning, people would Americans would frequently say. Uh, Hey, dude, dude, your pack is so dialed. <laughs> what, what on earth do you mean? Which, which is a compliment. It meant you had, you know, a tiny bag. So people were always saying I had a, a tiny backpack. Um, 
and then and as a consequence they would they would often follow that by saying and dude dude you're, you're like you're totally trucking which which means you know you're doing big days it's like well the two are related um, so I, I was ruthless i was ruthless uh with um like the lightest kit is the kit that you leave behind so i left behind uh I, so i had no stove i had no tent i had no trousers um and all of this i'd sort of i suppose i'd learnt by doing the john muir trail it was essentially the same and i was going a with a bit more stuff than the John Muir just because it was so much longer and so many different uh, sort of climate zones. Um, and I had the great help and luxury of uh, my sister-in-law, Becky, Jane's sister, who lives in Southern California. And I left a duffel of all my stuff, spare stuff with her. And I was always posting stuff that I didn't need back to her. And then if I did need something, she could post it back to me. Okay. So you make extensive use of the post. Uh, so I had a week in advance at, Beck, at Jeff and Becky's house, and Jeff was really helpful as well. And um, so I bought loads of food, and I boxed it up, and I worked out where to post it to, but I left the boxes open. And when it was time to post them, I would often phone Becky and say, and can you add these extra little bits? Um, okay. and, and, that, and really that was, uh, I suppose, one of the other remarkable parts of the trail was I'd sort of intended or anticipated starting at the beginning posting a box a bunch of stuff food and then resupplying in various little shops off trail along the way and a few like four I think four American friends got wind of what I was doing and they they messaged me and said you know we'd really like to help um, so I pulled together a very detailed spreadsheet and I sent it out the week before, and it was just like tumbleweed. There was just no response, and I thought, well, well, that's absolutely fine. You know, people are busy. Uh, I, I was planning to do this, kind of sort myself out anyway. Um, and then maybe a day before I started, it just went mental. And the, the, I made these four people admins of the group chat, and by the end of the by the end of the trail there were 70 people on the group chat really? and so friends and distant family like family of family i suppose um would say right well we're going to come and meet you here and we'll have some food for you and we're going to come and meet you here and we'll have some food and people i'd never even met there were i had parcels ready to go and and uh, this this one couple um, Molly and Matt drove a box for 4 hours to meet me in the high sierras that I was intending to post that could have been posted, but they wanted to drive up to say hello and give me some extra food and love. And and it was just amazing. The generosity of so many people along the way um, really made it. I, 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 so I'm super grateful to all these people. Um, and it definitely made it more fun and it definitely made it easier and it made it quicker. And um, I think psychologically seeing friendly familiar faces along the way was was a real boost um, so yeah I was very lucky uh, right final question on the PCT then yep. uh, how many snakes oh god <laughs> uh, yeah um, uh, I tell you oh god because I I really don't like snakes and uh, I saw lots uh, so what I learnt was um, 
rattlesnakes, for example, um, they are there is a family of rattlesnakes. So I didn't know. So, like, some of them are, are really bad to get bitten by, and some of them are like extra bad. Like, you've got an hour left to live. Bad. Um, and so I very nearly stepped on, I don't know, probably four or five, because you just don't see them. They're camouflaged. They don't move. I very nearly sat on a Northern Pacific rattlesnake, and that's one of the sort of one hour left to live oh, rattlesnakes. Really? And he was just sat there. He didn't give a damn about me. And it was right next to a little tr trickle of water that I needed to stop at because it had been dry for the last 10 miles. So I needed to fill my bottle. And that was the place to sit. So I was just about to sit. And it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> there's a snake. So I kind of kind of got my head around that. And I was walking. You kind of get used to the feel of the trail. And, and you can tell when you're on the trail. You can tell when you're walking on rocks or on, on branches or whatever on the trail. And this one time I put my foot down and it was soft. And I looked down and I had stood in the middle of a five-foot snake that was crossing the trail. It slithered between me very quickly in the blind spot between your toes and your vision. And I, I, it was like an instant scream. Instantly I was in the air. And I, you know, I was just like blind terror. And I, I, thankfully I looked down at the snake. It, it went off the trail as quick as it could. But as it went off, by that stage I'd seen so many snakes, I'd seen enough snakes, that I could recognise that it wasn't a rattlesnake. And I was just like, oh my goodness for that. Oh. Um, and so that was, that was bad. And then uh, the, the final snake story was, was um, I would swim whenever I could because that was kind of how you wash. You can't use soap, but you, just, you can just rinse in the water. Um, they don't want soap because they don't want it contaminating okay, the water, yeah, which, sure. which totally makes sense. Um, so I was swimming and it was lovely and cooling and I swam back to shore and just between me and the shore, I was only like two feet from the shore, a snake swam in the water between me and the shore. And I was just like, you, you are completely taking the piss now. You know, what is a snake doing in the water? I, mean, I know that snakes can swim, but it just hadn't occurred to me that there would be a swimming snake in the water. Oh. And thankfully that wasn't venomous, but... Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, lots of snakes. And added interest. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're we're um, we could keep, no, keep no, talking, I, I, um, and I I think probably after uh, just in a minute we when we finish this we probably are going to continue hopefully with a wee whiskey yeah um, chatting but um, that that's been absolutely a brilliant conversation really yeah good to talk about this huge variety of things uh, the the good and the, the incredibly difficult and. Um, Thanks so much for agreeing to do it. Um, well, Finley, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting and, and uh, hope I haven't waffled on too much. It's been great. Um, do, you, do, you, do you have a Just Giving page? Yeah, you thank you. Thank you for, for that. Um, so through my, all of my cancer stuff, uh, Maggie's Cancer Centres were, the Cancer Centre in Edinburgh, they're, they're nationwide, I think they're international now, were the single best thing outside of, family and friends and they give advice and support and counselling and uh, um, you know, groups um, and so if you google Ollie's Pacific Crest Trail just giving um, that will take you to a, to a fundraising page so if anybody's feeling like they want to donate that would be much appreciated and it's going to a very good cause. Brilliant. 
Thanks. Great. Thank you very much, Finley. Okay, that was the end of episode 22, Go Mountain Goats. Uh, remember the leaderboard, uh, gomountaingoats.com uh, for your the top 10s for some of the running stuff, particularly around Le Cabre for the rounds. And um, yeah, we'll be back with the next episode in due course. Thank you.